Thank you for checking out this talk from the Fierce Families Conference that took place back in October of 2023. Our mission for this conference was to put God's design for marriage and family on full display, and then to equip marriages and families to live out God's beautiful design in the context in which he's placed them. So if you'd like to learn more about the Fierce Families Conference, perhaps to attend a conference in the future, or to bring the Fierce Families Conference to your own area, just go to FierceFamilies.com. Yeah, yeah, good morning. I'm from Mississippi. We say good morning. Y'all say it back. Good morning. <laughs> anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you to Fierce Families, the Fredericks, um, for, for this privilege to speak to you all. Thank you all for being here. And on behalf of Evangelical Reformed Church, uh, welcome. Uh, it's a blessing to be here. This has been a tremendous conference. I've enjoyed our last two speakers. Uh, they've loaded us up, haven't they? Well, I hope your plate still has a little room. I'm about to load you up too, all right? So, um, curing the curse of convenience is our topic today. And I'm trying to discern what it is about modern life uh, that keeps us from being the men of God we ought to be and what we can do about it. And to begin, I want to go back and look at a man whom we admire, at least, at least I do, and see if there's anything we can learn about ourselves from looking at him. I'm, of course, talking about Martin Luther. Luther once said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I used to hate quotes like this because they discouraged me. They made me realize how short I fall in reaching the standards set by my predecessors. You see, in families, fathers present the ideal of what a man should be, and Martin Luther is one such father, especially for a pastor. He is the essential churchman, theologian par excellence. So anytime I heard about his accomplishments, it hurt my pride, for I felt like a lightweight being compared to a heavyweight. Not only was Luther brilliant, courageous, fierce, diligent, and charismatic, but he was also godly and had a command over his rigorous prayer life. In my pride, I would hear quotes like this and feel defeated because I did not believe I could be as faithful or as useful to the kingdom as he once was. And I think Frankly, that was by design when I consider the context. See, I'd usually hear a quote like this during a conference like this or at a seminary lecture. And the speaker, who was both a great admirer of past church ages and also very upset with the current state of things in the church, would use this type of quote to prick my pride and the pride of my colleagues, hoping that doing so would goad us into action. These men, these well-intentioned men, I believe, did not know how to encourage men properly. Their overall, overall gripe would sound something like this. Men in general and Christian men in particular are not living up to the call, so the thought goes. In the past 40 years, we've seen a decline in our men. From the pulpit to the pews, men have failed to produce in some way or another. Men are less serious, less faithful, less productive, less competent, less reliable, and less fit to lead our churches, families, and society. What we need is a resurgence. What we need is a reformation. What we need to do is to return to a time where men were men, and so are the women, I guess. That was a joke. <laughs> Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. All of us have heard a fact about a notable figure lifted out of its context and applied to our time unilaterally in order to show that relative to the abilities of uh, our predecessors, modern men are less capable than they should be. And I'm not the only one who's noticed this. In the preface to a modern translation of John Calvin's A Little Book on the Christian Life, 
the editors make a similar observation regarding how a remarkable fact about Calvin's career is improperly applied today. Quote, Calvin was 27 years old with merely several years of self-study in his theology when the Institutes first appeared, a fact often rehearsed to demoralize middle-aged aspiring theologians or browbeat younger ones into greater productivity. Close quote. Well-intentioned or not, this uphill both ways approach to men's ministry is trite, played out, and counterproductive. Because if all you do is tell a man what he isn't, he will begin to think he is less than he truly is. Tell a man he isn't strong enough, he'll believe he's weak. Tell a man he's not smart enough, he'll believe he's dumb. Tell a man he doesn't pray enough, he'll think he's a hypocrite. It's as though we view the countless testimonies within the annals of church history more as a hall of fame instead of as a cloud of witnesses. And this is inappropriate. The final reasons I didn't appreciate quotes like this when they were applied in that manner is because it stressed the wrong aspect of the man's character. We admire Luther for his giftedness, talent, and capabilities. We believe they are the reason why he was so successful. But you know what? Ironically, I don't think Luther thought that way of himself. I don't think he saw himself as capable to do the things God called him to do. And here's how I know that. Capable men don't pray. Not for one hour, certainly not for three hours. Vain, brilliant, successful, self-righteous men don't pray to God for help. They don't need it. They skip things like prayer to get on with more important things. Christian men don't think this way, though. To a man set on being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. To a man set on knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection so that he may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To a man forgetting, as we heard, what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, the thought of starting anything worthwhile before praying for God's help is not just irreverent, it's arrogant and foolish. So why did Luther pray so much and for so long? Because he knew his identity. He was a disciple of Christ, and it was because he knew his purpose to pick up his cross and to follow Christ. Because he was weak and needed God's help to remember who he was and to help him carry out his purpose. That's why he prayed. So when I hear that Luther prayed three hours on his busier days, I don't see a titan. I see a beggar, one who is a debtor to grace. A man who looked at his plate and thought, only the hand of God can provide what I need to seize the day. I'm glad I figured this out about him because I admired Luther, but I couldn't relate to him. But now I see that he was just as I am, a small, weak man redeemed and used by a holy God. And I'm sure that would describe some of us, I mean, excuse me, some of you as well. You can relate to that. Luther prayed to God because he feared him and needed him. So what does that say about me that I don't pray? And if this is you, if you're in the same predicament as I am, ask yourself, Knowing this about Luther, why don't you pray this way? Why is 
my faith in God so weak and my aspirations for myself so high? Well, it's not because we can't pray. I don't know how. I think it's just because prayer is just too inconvenient. Let us pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this task of uh, proclaiming your word. And thank you, Lord, that you've assembled these men to hear it. Uh, let me speak clearly. Let these men hear uh, um, rightly what it is you would have us do as we navigate life in this modern, convenient world. In Jesus' name, amen. The curse of convenience, once again, is our topic today, and I'm looking to make the argument that to the extent that a society pursues a particular ethos, ours is one who for the last 70 years or so has pursued and upheld convenience. And when a society such as ours correlates the good with convenience, that society will succumb to the curse of convenience because to them, the moral standard for righteousness is no longer determined by God's character, but by our carnal wares. In other words, the curse of convenience is the moral admission that there's nothing worse than to suffer discomfort. Again, the curse of convenience is the moral admission that there's nothing worse than to suffer discomfort. Let's face it, prayer isn't comfortable or easy. Nothing about the Christian life is. And our society, I believe, has been given over by God to leisure and preference. We live to amuse ourselves and to avoid hardships. It's not always been this way, of course. It certainly wasn't in Luther's day. In most of human history, being a man meant you face chronic hardship daily, only to look up long enough to see if heaven had brought a lighter day. Presently, though, it is easy to be a man. Rather, it is easy to exist as a man, or a woman or a child for that matter, and to exist for a longer period of time than men had in previous generations. Because of modernity, existing in the first world West is easy. The advances in innovations in husbandry, healthcare, and housing, etc., have made it easy for us to have all we need to sustain life. Modern industry and technology have raised our standard of living so that many of the hardships humanity have faced we no longer have to. For example, we aren't hungry. Not a single person in here is starving. But because of the manna we get from modern conveniences made possible through food sourcing and grocery stores, we can't appreciate this for the miracle it is. Also, peace and protection are the norm, not the exception. This has not always been the case. War and conflict between nations are seen now as outliers on the world stage. And even in our homes, whenever an intruder encroaches on our property, we don't have to pick up the sword in self-defense like our ancestors did. Rather, we have the option and, frankly, the social expectation to call the police so as to make the intrusion another man's problem. Life overall is less harsh. Infant mortality is low. Clean drinking water is plentiful. Our nation's infrastructure is set. And we have health insurance and 401ks. The issues our fathers and their fathers faced and that faced all men since the fall we no longer do. Issues like safety, life expectancy, and provision, all things concerning life and limb, are settled. So as men, we no longer had to leave, live lives of death and strife, hunting and gathering, or sowing and reaping. We can now live lives of amusement and convenience. Indeed, it is easy for a man to exist, and to exist comfortably. 
but how is it to function as a man, to function in the way God intended men to function? It's quite difficult. Think about it. How can a man function if he's got nothing left to do? What's his value? What good is my strong back when there are no burdens to lift? What good are my shoulders if there are no more crosses to carry? What good are my fists and the strength of my grip if there are no more battles to fight or truces to make? And why would a man living today when he puts his feet under his table and is about to eat his meal first stop to thank a God whom he cannot see for his kind provision when the world that he can see tells him that his daily bread is not a gift but a foregone conclusion? Again, how could a man function in this manner in which God designed men to function if he's got nothing left to do? How can a man be expected to function in this way, in such an environment? And most importantly, is a man likely to glorify God when he sees no, imp no impending need for this God? He can't, he's not, and he won't. So he gives himself over to a life of amusement and convenience, and this too is vanity. Convenience has not improved our lives. It has left us in spiritual squalor. And I want to uncover its effects on Christian men. First, I want to define convenience. Then I want to look at the spiritual ramifications of convenience. And I want to make the argument that the cure for the curse of convenience is the fear of God. And to understand the cure, to help us understand how to apply it, we will look to our example, the Lord Jesus Christ, during his first of three temptations. So what do I mean by convenience? Convenience, as I've defined it, is the state of being that is both void of hardship, frustration, and error, and that is stable, agreeable, and accommodating. Convenience, as I've defined it, is the state of being that is both void of hardship, frustration, and error, and that is stable, agreeable, and accommodating. From this definition, we can see that there are two sides to this coin, a negative side, what convenience rids us of, namely difficulty, and a positive side, what convenience promises to provide, namely enjoyment. Convenience is not simply the absence of hardship, though. It isn't obvious that a circumstance lacking difficulty without having something enjoyable in its place will necessarily lead to convenience. An environment that is void of both difficulty and enjoyment is more likely to lead to boredom, which is unpleasant and therefore inconvenience. An example would be watching grass grow. Uh, that's not difficult, but it isn't pleasant either. It's boring, it's inconvenient. Nor is convenience just the presence of enjoyment within an otherwise difficult situation. We could think of many situations that are both difficult and enjoyable, but we wouldn't call them convenient. Things like parenting, practice, vocation, and sanctification are examples of things that are both difficult and enjoyable. In these circumstances, enjoyment is the byproduct of overcoming the difficulty that lies uh, in the process of a thing moving towards its perfection. In these situations, the process of reaching your goals can be satisfying. It can provide stimulation from the uh, perpetual novelty and complexity in your progression. The testing of your effort and character make you more confident in your abilities. Basically, overcoming difficulty is what makes the, the process of achievement just as rewarding as the prize itself. And it's also what makes those trials so meaningful. And it's also what makes them inconvenient. 
Convenience cannot provide meaning, just short-term pleasure with little resistance and with no promise that your life will turn out better in the long run. In many cases, convenience can rob you of your joy because it narrows your focus to the short-term, causing you to give up long-lasting gains for short-term relief. Sorry, I'm going to dig a little deeper, be a little more technical. We're going to get to the good stuff. But I want to look at the etymology of the word convenience. It helps us understand how it operates. The word convenience comes from the Latin word covenantia, which means meeting together, agreement, or harmony. Its root word, convenien, means to come together, to meet, to unite, to join. This shows that convenience operates by narrowing, narrowing the gap between a desire and its satisfaction. Another way to put that is that convenience provides shortcuts to get what you want. So let's use that word shortcut for here. It's a shortcut to convenience. Shortcuts aren't necessarily bad. Let me make that clear. Shortcuts aren't necessarily bad. People use them all the time in helpful ways. For instance, music can help students memorize facts for tests. In the eighth grade, I learned and memorized the capitals and countries of Central America from a song the teacher played during each session, during each, excuse me, I gotta get some water, hang on. Way to go, who put these under there, thanks. In eighth grade, I learned and memorized the capitals and countries of Central America from the song the teacher played during each session. Now the song was so effective that after 20 plus years, I still remember all those countries and capitals. And I can name them right now without even reviewing. Ask me about that in the Q&A though. There are other kinds of legitimate shortcuts. For instance, if you're a carpenter, it's better to have a nail gun over a hammer. If you're traveling, it's probably better to fly long distances than to drive. When I moved here from Mississippi, I drove cross country with an elder of ours, Jim Howard, who at the time was a total stranger. My wife and kids, on the other hand, flew. Now, I promise, and you can go tell Jim this, I enjoyed <laughs> driving with Jim from Mississippi. I certainly enjoyed the experience more than if I had flown. But it wasn't a more convenient traveling experience than flying would have been. And I have the stories to prove it. You can ask me that in Q&A, too. So those are good shortcuts. But what makes a shortcut good? When does it become bad? We can answer that by asking the questions, who am I and what am I supposed to do? Who am I? What am I supposed to do? In other words, you need to identify your identity and purpose to determine if a shortcut is good or bad. The identity purpose dynamic has an if then correlation similar to what we heard today. Meaning, if you are blank, then you will blank. Your identity determines your purpose. For example, if you're a carpenter, then you will build quality wooden structures. If you're a student, then you should study and learn the material. If you're a father, then you raise your son. If you're a Christian, then you carry your cross. If you know your if, then you'll know your then. Do you understand, does that make sense? If you know your if, you will know your then. There are no shortcuts to fulfilling your purpose. You cannot skate on your responsibilities. If you're a carpenter, you can't cut corners, no pun intended. If you're a student, you can't cheat. If you're a dad, you can't abandon your son. Those are convenient options, uh, uh, options, but they compromise you and cause you to sin because they undermine your identity and cause you to abandon your purpose. Your behavior should flow from your identity, 
towards the satisfaction of your purpose. So once you've figured out who you are and what you're supposed to do, you can ask yourself, you can ask if a shortcut is harmful or beneficial by asking these two questions. Does the shortcut complement or undermine my identity? I.e., will this shortcut make me a bad father or a good one or a better one? Second, does this shortcut help me fulfill or abandon my purpose? I.e., will this shortcut cause me to abandon or neglect my son or to raise him better? So we can go back to the nail gun. Do y'all think that's a good or a bad shortcut? Good, good. Y'all are following along. That's making sense. All right. We'll keep it going. I think it's good as well. A carpenter needs to build good wooden structures. A nail gun helps the carpenter do what carpenters, carpenters do. It complements his identity and helps him satisfy his purpose. A talented carpenter with a hammer is still a talented carpenter, but a talented carpenter with a nail gun is an efficient and talented carpenter. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should work harder and not smarter. I'm not against the mere presence of convenience. Everything has its place. The carpenter here isn't suffering from the curse of convenience. He still acts like a carpenter, whether or not he has advanced tools. He's not failing in his responsibilities by cutting corners or doing shoddy work. The only shortcuts he takes are those that align with his identity and help him fulfill his purpose. His integrity is still intact. Now, a man suffering from the curse of convenience is more like the preacher who orders his sermons in the mail or uses AI software to write them. Because instead of using legitimate, uh, legitimate tools, which were created to help him prepare better sermons more efficiently, he'd instead use AI software to do all the heavy lifting for him. So do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between the, the preacher and the carpenter? One avoids inefficiency in his work. The other avoids work altogether. The preacher is suffering from the curse of uh, convenience to outsource the work entirely, because for him, the work itself is inconvenient. Work is bad because it's uncomfortable. He suffers from the curse of convenience because to him, there's nothing worse than discomfort, not the loss of his integrity, not the loss of his job, not even the loss of his soul is worse, is worse than experiencing temporary discomfort from work. And this man, I would suggest, doesn't fear God. And this doesn't just pertain to work. We take shortcuts in many areas of life. Regarding relationships, there's easy sex. Regarding parenting, fatherlessness, and abortion. Regarding citizenship, expanded government oversight. Regarding adulthood, failure to launch. Regarding uh, stewardship, high levels of debt, and so on. Now to us, those sound like problems, don't they? But to a culture corrupted by convenience, they're actually solutions. They're shortcuts intended to help avoid the inconvenience of responsibility. Society does not feel accountable to God to do what is right, not one corrupted by convenience. They only feel accountable to themselves to do what is convenient. But what about the cost to all those solutions? That doesn't matter. All convenience is concerned about is getting gratification now. The cost of convenience is someone else's problem. And the curse of convenience has infected the church, in my estimation. 
Over time, Christians have chosen preference and taste in worship over faithful adherence to doctrine. In his blog post, It All Looks the Same, Pastor Rich notes this. He notes the dramatic nature of this change, saying, It is safe to say that Sunday morning worship has changed more in the last 40 years than it has in the previous 400. Also saying that what we believe about God has been trumped by worship style. And since the 1970s and up to the present, the church has been more or less infatuated with preference and have, less, uh, have been less tied with tradition. The church has changed the nature of worship and its message to, uh, to uh, proclaim faith in order to suit the modern trend of convenience and preference. In his book, The Courage to be Protestant, David B. Wells wrote that Sunday morning worship had become self-focused and consumer-oriented. And he continues, quote, It was a faith in search of discomfort and, in, and assurance in the midst of all the anxieties created by modern life. But this comfort and assurance were all about the private interior world. More than that, they were about therapy and rarely about truth. That was the change to which the church marketers attuned themselves. Instead of seeing this inward turn, this yearning for therapy as a weakness to be resisted, they used it as an opportunity to be exploited. Increasingly, evangelical faith was released from any connections with the past, from every consideration except the self, and was imbued with no other objective by the pastors involved in the undertaking than to uh, acquire entrepreneurial success. As the evangelical experience was thus cut loose, it became increasingly cultural, increasingly empty, increasingly superficial, and increasingly irrelevant in the modern world." Close quote. We have traded in righteousness for ease, even the church, not just our culture. And God has given us over to our desires because we have not feared him and kept his commandments. We have not in all our ways acknowledged him so that we will, he will make straight our paths, Proverbs 3, 6. And since we did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave us up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done, Romans 1.28. Things are getting worse. We've said that, I think, about three times during this conference. And you see it. It's blatantly obvious that things are getting worse, and we seem less equipped to deal with it. I don't believe it's an accident that things are getting worse. I believe our society is receiving the just judgment of God, a divine curse in which he devotes a people to destruction by giving them over to that which they worship. Our God is convenience and our idolatry has become our undoing. So why don't we just stop? <laughs> why don't we just man up? Why don't we just stop seeking the easy route and make ourselves uh, change course. Well, because we're on a moving ship, barreling full steam ahead, and our idolatry has made it so that making a sharp turn at this rate will only capsize us. Breaking the curse of convenience will take more than just flipping an internal switch. It's not as simple as that. Now, of course, that hasn't stopped men from trying, though. The world notices that convenience is a problem, 
Read any self-help book or Manosphere blog, and that's the kind of advice you'll get. Just change. Embrace the suck. Find your passion. Clean your room. Sleep is the cousin of death, so hustle, hustle, hustle. Get up and get yourself into action. That's the world's solution. The poster child for this is a man named David Goggins. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. yeah, he's pretty tough. Okay. This guy's amazing. I got to say, he is. Um, I found out about him in seminary, and I was floored when I heard his story. He's a motivational speaker, author, special ops veteran, and ultramarathon runner. His is a story of a man's desire to draw himself out of the pit and into glory by sheer character of his will. And he was successful even against some pretty heavy odds. As a child, he was abused, beaten, and abandoned. After his parents split, he left with his mother, who raised him and his siblings alone. As a result of the instability in his home, he suffered from mental and emotional trauma. In the third grade, he was diagnosed with a learning disability because he rarely went to school. What added to this difficulty of learning was the toxic levels of stress he sustained because of his father's abuse. The stress caused him to develop a stutter, making him socially awkward. In a Joe Rogan interview, he says he was constantly in fight or flight response with social anxiety because of his stuttering. He had, to, to top it off, he had run-ins with the KKK, real ones. <laughs> was diagnosed with sickle cell anemia, learned he had a hole in his heart, and when he grew up, he became overweight, unfulfilled, and working a dead-end job. So, tired of being a loser, Goggins set his sights on becoming a winner, no matter the cost. So what did he do to turn things around? He applied to become a Navy SEAL. But to enlist, he had to lose 106 pounds in three months. To put that into perspective, if you do keto diet consistently and maintain a calorie deficit throughout, most people lose about 10 pounds in one month. This guy lost 35 pounds per month. He graduated Bud's training, which is SEAL training, class 235 in two, uh, 2001, making him the 36th African-American Navy SEAL in SEAL history. In his 20-year career, Goggins served tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, graduated from Army School, Army Ranger School, was awarded 18 military medals, including the Meritorious Service Medal, Rifle Marksmanship Medal with Expert Device, and the Air Force Achievement Medal. As a runner, he competed in 60 races, going back to 2005. In his very first race, he competed in the San Diego One Day, uh, San Diego One Day, which is a 24-hour ultramarathon. He had to run for 24 hours. It's his very first one, by the way. The ultramarath uh, he also competed in the Ultraman World Championship Triathlon in Hawaii, placing second in a three-day 320-mile race. In 2007, he placed third in the Badwater Ultramarathon with a time of 25 hours, 49 uh, minutes, and 40 seconds. And according to his website, Badwater is, quote, one of the hardest and most brutal races where competitors test their endurance in the middle of Death Valley. And believe it or not, he swears he hates running. He does. There's nothing convenient about that, right? Also in 2007, Goggins claimed the Guinness World Record for pull-ups with 4,030 in 17, uh, 17 hours. 
He has written a couple of success, successful books, so so much for that learning disability, done tons of interviews, so so much for that stutter and severe social anxiety, and, as a, and he is as highly regarded for his philanthropy, <laughs> that's a good one, I messed up on that one every time, is highly regarded for his philanthropy work with veterans as he is for his racing accomplishments and military service. Sadly, though, if you hear any of his interviews, you learn quickly he's not a believer. He comes off as intense, vulgar, and rough around the edges. But he also sounds pretty sincere. I think the guy's a real deal. I wouldn't suggest listening to any of them. But if you, if you listen to any of his interviews, you'll get that sense, I believe. So David Goggins is proof that the cure to the curse of convenience can be awaged or, or administered through sheer will, Right? Not my estimation, because despite all his accomplishments, he has one glaring mark on his record. He failed in one of the most important areas in a man's life, his marriage. The man's been divorced. I don't know y'all's story. I'm not talking about anyone here who's been divorced. I'm talking about David Goggins. Divorce is ugly and complicated. I don't know the details of his. But what I do know is that this man, who is known for accomplishing great things, difficult things, through total willpower, gave up on this one. At one point, his identity was husband, so his purpose was to love his wife. But he failed, and no amount of medals or races can change that. Curing the curse of convenience takes more than physical fitness and emotional toughness. Yes, it's good to be strong. It's good to train your mind and body to endure physical hardship. But that's a secondary matter. Rather, we need to train ourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Timothy, 10, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. So willpower doesn't keep you from being selfish and thinking about yourself. Convenience does um, uh, makes that impossible. And it doesn't help you love God or your neighbor more. It doesn't help you prioritize things that matter, at least not on its own. So if willpower is not the answer, what do we do? What do we do to fix this? That's the question. When there's a problem, men naturally want to know what it is they can do to fix it. Uh, but I don't want to do that here. I don't want to go the angry churchman route and say, y'all need to be like Luther, or go the manosphere route and say you need to be like Goggins. I want to go the Proverbs route and tell you that you need to be like Jesus and fear God, because only the fear of God can spur faith into action to cure the curse of convenience. To see how we'll look at our Lord, Savior, and example, Christ Jesus, in the, uh, in the first of his third temptations in the wilderness, and learn how the fear of God helped him give him the faith and discipline to remember his identity and purpose and overcome the temptation to take the easy way when the cross was before him. I'm looking at Luke 4, 1 through 4, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they, and when they had ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus, the second Adam, 
son of David, son of Abraham, has just been baptized and confirmed by the father that he is the son of God. This is his identity, the son of God. Again, identity is important. You must know who you are to fight temptation. If you know your identity, you know your purpose. We talked about this earlier and is the main reason I chose Luke's account of this temptation over Mark's and Matthew's because of how Luke sets the stage. He wants to stress Christ's identity. See, before Jesus is tempted, his identity is confirmed twice. First at his baptism, uh, chapter three, verses 21 to 22, where the spirit anoints him with power and the father affirms him, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The second time is in the genealogy, which in Luke's account comes after the baptism and before the temptation. In the very last line in verse 38, it says, Jesus is the son of God. If you've ever wondered why Luke put this there, it is to stress his identity to set the stage for what happens next. Jesus is the son of God. That was his identity and his identity informed his purpose. But what was his purpose? Luke 25, 25 to 26 tells us, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow to heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. What is not was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things in order to enter into glory? The son of God was to suffer and enter into his father's glory. Jesus had to know who he was to fulfill his purpose. His purpose being to suffer and die for our sins and be raised in glory. His identity was confirmed. He was the beloved son who had come to suffer. Jesus had to believe that he was the son of God and that God loved him. And he had to believe this no matter what. If he allowed suffering to cause him to doubt God's love or cause him to think that God's love isn't worth the cost, he would have failed. His subjection to suffer was crucial to his ministry as our sympathetic high priest. As Bonhoeffer said, if he was to help man who is flesh, he had to take upon himself the whole temptation experience of flesh. Even Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, was born with the question, has God, uh, has God really said? Yet he was without sin, close quote. So like the first Adam who was tested in the garden, Jesus, the second Adam, was thrust into the wilderness for a period of testing. Yet he dealt with conditions far worse than Adam's. No wife, no garden, no food. He was alone in the wilderness, fasting in the likeness of sinful flesh that is prone to suffer in the world that has fallen and completely hostile toward him. Even his encounter with Satan differed from Adam's. Adam encountered Satan through his wife who saw him as a snake. Jesus met Satan face to face with no disguise or shroud to mitigate or soften the encounter. And Satan knew the pain Jesus underwent. He knew that men in this state were vulnerable to sin. I had a friend tell me that if you ever tempted to sin, think halt, H-A-L-T. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? But Jesus was no Esau. He wouldn't trade in his birthright for a morsel of food. So Satan attacked him where it mattered most, his identity. Satan says, if you are the son of God. Now, you hear that if. If you know your if, then you'll know your then. Satan is coaxing Jesus to put conditions on his obedience. He's trying to convince Jesus to set the terms for what it means to be the son of God. He wants Jesus to disobey and to obey him instead. But he doesn't say, turn these stones to bread. He doesn't even begin with the feeling of hunger. He goes to the most fundamental aspect of his character, his identity. Satan attacks his identity 
trying to sow seeds of doubt. So now let's see how he tries to attack his purpose. He says, command these stones to become bread. Satan is saying, do you know who you really are? If so, do you really think the son of God would have to be put through this? Can you really say that loving God, that a loving God and father would cause his son this level of discomfort? Satan wants Jesus to act on the conviction that God doesn't love him and that he should cure his own hunger on his terms. So how does Jesus respond? With complete deference to the authority of his father. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus sets him straight. Jesus is saying that he only consults his father to determine who he is and what he is supposed to do. He doesn't care about what he's going through. He doesn't care how much it hurts. He will not consult his flesh, his circumstances or Satan to tell him who he is or how he should live or what he deserves. Because although he is hungry, his father loves him for he is his son. He told him so himself. So he takes his father's word and will live by and die by that alone. Jesus fears God completely. He knows who's in charge. He knows he must die or he must do his father's will. He knows from the word that man isn't supposed to live by bread alone or to put it differently, that there are worse things than to suffer discomfort. And that is to offend a holy God by taking the convenient route when the way of suffering is the course he has you on. Satan appealed to the convenience of the situation to cause Jesus to compromise, but he wouldn't. He knew his identity. He knew his purpose, both of which came from God. So he couldn't be bought off with cheap tricks. He feared God more than he feared suffering. In conclusion, in my intro, I said men have nothing to do in our society. That's not true, not for men of God. Indeed, you are men of God. That is your identity. You are to take up your cross and follow Christ. That is your purpose. The world, the flesh, and the devil are out to sell you short on lies of comfort and convenience. Forsake the way that is broad that leads to destruction and follow the narrow way of Christ, which leads to life. Believe the gospel, fear God, and be the men God called you to be. Let us pray.